Welcome again to Two Ways News. Tony's on holidays this day, so you've got Philip Jensen speaking to you, and I thought we'd bring in our second string, so I've invited my brother to come and share with me. I'm not going to sit on Tony's seat. I'm still sitting in mine, and Peter's sitting in on Tony's seat. Yes, but I won't be asking too many questions, obviously. Oh, I hope you do. No, no, no. We might get long answers. Ah, how true that is. Okay. (laughs) We're coming up recording this just in the week before Easter, and I suppose by the time you're listening to it, it'll be after Easter. But Easter's on our minds at the moment, so I thought we'd ask some questions about Easter. And Peter, can you remember your childhood Easter's? I have to say, Philip, only vaguely, and if you tell me that things happened, I would believe you because I don't remember. What I do remember is the procession of witness. But not in your childhood? No, it was more my teenage years, I have to say. In my childhood, the only thing I'm going to think of is chocolate. Did we have chocolate eggs and egg hunts and things? Because I don't recall them. I seem to remember some degree of chocolate. The day Good Friday was taken extraordinarily seriously by our parents, wasn't it, as as an important day? And we were told why it was called Good Friday, namely that Jesus died to save the world that day. I don't remember going to church, but I remember being in trouble for making too much noise on the day. Unlike my brother, I didn't spend my time reading and feeling self-righteous because I was quiet. And I remember eating... We had to eat fish. Oh, goodness. Yes. Yes. Well... As I say, your memory is better than mine, and uh, I believe everything you tell me. You just weren't as traumatised as I was. No, apparently the experience. not. But tell me about the, the procession of witness. What do you remember about Well, that? the procession of witness, it began, as I understand, uh, as a sort of protest against the opening of the Royal Easter show on Good Friday. And so the churches decided, or the Anglican church, I should say, the Church of England, as it was called in those days, decided to have a procession of witness through the city. And so, in my memory, eight or 9,000 people, perhaps more, gathered and marched in parishes, or perhaps in organisations as well, like the uh, Boy Society, the Girl Society, through the city. We would march, I think it ended up at Hyde Park, and there was probably a service there. In later days, it ended up near the cathedral. But in any case, there was a service and a a sermon for the folk who had gathered. It was, uh, oh, I remember more college students used to be the sort of the policeman who would guide you stand at the corners and guide the procession. Wearing academic Wearing gowns, academic right? gowns, looking yes. very strong. And it was uh, it was quite fun. I don't think there were many people looking on. Well, but the city was empty, wasn't it? The city, everything was closed feeling. up. Yes, the whole city was closed. So it was not as though there were hundreds of spectators or thousands of spectators, not, not at all. But it was a good thing to do, I think, in its day. And um, it was a protest, but it was a protest in favour of the gospel. So it was a gospel occasion. But it was yeah. a gathering of the tribe, so to speak, also. Yes. I remember in first year university, I went there in that Easter to the procession, and there was my tutor in geography. That's how I suddenly found that he was a Christian and became a great friend on the way through university. Well, how interesting. My memory is, too, is that you were not supposed to carry ecclesiastical accoutrements such as crosses and things like that. And there was one parish in particular that sang as it went along. This, this may be a mythological story, but it's my, my memory. Is it a good story? I think it's good. Well, let's, let's leave the myth running then. And so they sang as they went along, Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus left behind the door. <laughs> So whether it's a true story or not, it's a pretty good one. It's a good story. Yes. Don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Exactly. I see. But what about Easter now? What does this weekend hold for you and Christine? Well, we will be uh, going to church, meeting with God's people. We On Easter Saturday is family day and we'll be gathering with the family for special reasons uh, and Sunday again to church. So it's a very church-filled weekend for us. 
And that will bring us much joy because I think just going to your church is a great thing to do, meeting with God's people, singing his praises, thinking particularly of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the great moments, the great moments in salvation history where our future was secured by the sacrifice of Jesus. These are immensely important moments and I'm glad that we I'm glad that we pause and remember these things. I think it is important that we have things like Christmas and Easter. From your church that you're going to, for example, though, does it celebrate it in any special way? Is it the Good Friday will be without music and quiet and sombre as a fast day and Sunday as a feast day of celebration? There have been such things in churches. I doubt that our church will particularly do this. But what we will try to do is invite many people to church that day. And there's sort of evidence out there, apparently, that uh, a lot of people, 40% even of people, would value an invitation to go to church over Easter. So we're told about the population of Australia, and uh, we are certainly inviting people to church that day who may not perhaps usually go to church. And we will try to make it simple, try to sing the old songs, and try to proclaim Christ. Yeah, I'm sure that's what will happen with me too in our churches. But other churches do make more of the drama of the Good Friday event. I mean, they do. the yes. Roman Catholics will have the Stations of the Cross, for example. Yes. A church I've heard of is going to have the Mark drama on Friday. Uh, namely, they're going to go through the Gospel of Mark in a sort of a dramatic way. And elsewhere, there are other churches who have the tradition, going way back, of having a meditation on the seven moments of the cross. And indeed, I've taken part in one such. And a number of people gather and just spend three hours together from midday till three in the afternoon, the time our Saviour spent on the cross while alive and thinking about the whole thing. And the time I did it, I thought it was very profitable. It's an interesting problem, isn't it? Linking the, the great theology of the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the actual historical events of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, so for some who recount the death and spend time, it's embraced by recounting the events and trying to bring into their present experience the events as if they mm. were there. Whereas for others, it's the teaching of the truth that is embraced by faith and so it's the proclamation of it rather than the reenactment of it hmm. that uh, is important yes that touches on two sorts of ideas of church i guess and and the gospel i think both can be effective though both well particularly i think the reenactments can be overdone on the other hand there is a sort of reenactment Maybe you disagree, I don't know, Phil, uh, with the Lord's Supper, uh, which Anglicans uh, celebrate on Good Friday in some of our churches. And I was just thinking about it this morning as I read the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper on, in Luke's Gospel. There is no Christianity which has ever existed in which there has not been a meal in commemoration of the death of Jesus, proclaiming the death of Jesus. And it is as if that is at the very heart. I mean, meals do commemorate events. You have special meals... Christmas Day, obviously, but there are other meals at which you gather, people gather to commemorate an event. And if we're thinking the historicity of Jesus and his death and resurrection, here is something that's been going on demonstrably since the very foundations of Christianity all around the world, which preaches the atoning work of Jesus, set up by Jesus himself for that purpose. Yes, it is a more biblical enactment. Mm. There's all kinds of strange enactments people have, the stripping of altars and yes. fleeing from the buildings yes. and the yes. like, and even repeating of the washing of the feet physically. Yes. 
yes. um, which are not the ones that Jesus said to do, such as the Lord's Supper he did. And that is the way of commemoration, isn't it? Yes. But then there are people who will not have the Lord's Supper on Good Friday. There are, and uh, that's always strikes From an Anglican point of view, that always strikes me as odd because the prayer book allows for this and uh, sets it up. And more deeply, it seems odd to me because if the Lord's Supper, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, by doing this you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, I mean... <laughs> What are you doing more clearly than in this sort of visible word uh, proclaiming the Lord's death? As long as it's accompanied by the preached word, of course. Of course. The secularisation of Easter, though, uh, has come to us. I mean, I haven't seen it yet, but it will come this week. There'll be a newspaper article pointing out the pagan background of Easter time as the basis upon which... Yes. That comes each year, doesn't it? It does. It it picks up first with Christmas. And the traditional story is that Christmas was a pagan festival which was taken over by the Christians sometime in the 4th century or something like this. That is absolute rubbish, as far as I can see. It's much more likely, according to the historical, uh, according to historians, that uh, Christmas was chosen... It's not in the Bible per se, but it was chosen by the early Christians as a time of celebration of the birth of Jesus because... It was nine months after the Passover. And they thought, well, Mary had this encounter with the angel around about the Passover. That, again, is not in the Bible. But this was their thinking. And it wasn't, in other words, Christmas was not a steal from a Roman pagan festival. It was an intentional attempt to fit in with the biblical story, if the exact evidence for it was lacking. Likewise with Easter. The, I read the Sydney Morning Herald. I'm a Sydney person, and I've you're read a, the Herald all my life. You're a masochist. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, I just noticed in 20, 30 years ago, the Herald editorial for Christmas Day was always, and I presume Easter as well for that matter, was always about the coming of Jesus written often by a clergyman. Now, the Christmas editorial goes out of its way not even to mention Jesus. Mm. And you just wonder what on earth people are thinking and trying to do. Or if they do mention Jesus, it's also a sort of perverted view of Jesus, that Jesus came just to spread love, like some, some pop star. Now, Easter is going the same way, of course. And it just seems so extraordinary that you can take Good Friday, the day of a crucifixion of all things, and turn it into, um, well, you tell me. What do you see? How do you see this secularisation? Well, I see the dating issue come again. That, oh, uh, really? Easter, yes, is a ancient pagan celebration oh. of spring, of the beginning of the new year. For, But, of course, that's very European. Yes. We, we're <laughs> sitting here in autumn. Yes. And we've just moved out of daylight saving because uh, mm-hmm. the, the days are actually getting colder. But the idea of the rabbit, the idea of the the, the bunny mm-hmm. coming forth and the idea of the egg. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christians can go along with these kind of secular ideas in that the egg is, you know, like the, like the grave, it is empty now. But frankly, it's the sales of chocolate that keep Easter as a yes. very important part of our... And hot cross buns. Hot cross buns. Where would we be without hot cross buns? <laughs> Thinner. Yes. Yes. I think Sunday's easier to secularise than the Friday. Yes, it is. So I heard on the radio this morning and they were saying, well, this is going to be a great week of spiritual music. And so on Good Friday, listen to Bach's and John's Passion and we'll be doing this. And 
for me, it'll be problematic because it'll most likely be in German and I won't understand what's being sung. Anyway, it's sung in such a fashion to make sure you don't understand the words. But leaving that aside, I thought, well, isn't that good? Bach, we're still getting St John's Passion. And then they said, and then on Sunday, you'll hear the music, the spiritual music of nature and renewal. And I thought, Yes, they're secularised, but the resurrection, haven't they? It's Nature and renewal. Yes, well, the idea of starting <laughs> things again, you see. it's <laughs> We've come to spring. We've come to the, oh. the new year. And I thought, well, it doesn't work for me poetically in Australia, but it also is just secularised. Yes, and intentionally so. Yes. And if I may say so, forgive this word, but stupidly so. For after all, what is our greatest? The greatest problem we have is sin and death. And this is what is confronted at the, at the cross and the resurrection. And of all the great messages of history, the Easter message of cross and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins and the defeat of, the defeat of death has to be the greatest message of history. And what are we doing with it? Hmm. Turning it into bunny rabbits. Yes, bunny rabbits. Well, I don't mind bunny rabbits, and I quite like chocolate eggs. But what? Yes. <laughs> well, what, why? What, what's behind it, Philip? Well, they've got nothing to say, really. One of the problems of atheism has always been that it's a negative philosophy. Mm. It tells you what not to believe, mm. but can't actually tell you what to believe. No. And so there is no meaning, purpose, outcome. There is no significance. Uh, it's it's a big problem. But I'm interested that it's harder for them to secularise the death of Jesus. Yes. And so it's like this book by Tom Holland, which I presume yes, you've seen. Yes, yes, I have, yes. Where the crucifixion is outlined at the very beginning of the book with graphic detail, <laughs> pointing out how his world has been shaped, not by his atheism and not by his Greco-Roman love of history, but yeah. shaped by the crucifixion. Yeah. as changing values, morality and the rest. Yes, actually I was listening to uh, Mr Holland this morning uh, in, a, in a podcast in which he lectured on this very subject and talked about it and talked about the way he'd been involved in it. I don't know if he mentions this in the book, but he, he'd been to see the aftermath of uh, a terrible Middle East conflict where men had been crucified and women had been appallingly treated. And so crucifixion came alive. Mm. And he talks about crucifixion in a vivid and horrible way. Who else but God could turn a symbol of shame and horror into a symbol which is universally recognised and is deeply redemptive? Who but God? It is, it's, I think, one of the most extraordinary stories. And so does Tom Holland, hmm. more to the point, doesn't he? Yes. Yeah. Everyone's been trying to set up empires for centuries. Yeah. But no one does it by getting themselves killed. No. It's not, it's not the method no. by which people choose. No. no. Uh, but without resurrection... That doesn't work either, is it? The resurrection is so important, isn't it? It is. But I, I'm not sure that we Christians have pushed the doctrine of resurrection clearly enough. It seems we preach the gospel of the cross, and why not? I mean, this is the great message. But then in preaching the resurrection, it tends to be the afterthought, the, the postscript, that Jesus died for our sins and our sins are paid for. Jesus calls out, it is finished, and by the way, he rose from the dead three days later. Where the resurrection plays a much more important central point to Christian understanding and gospeling, doesn't it? I think it does, uh, Phil. Uh, the one of the problems that I see, and you, you may uh, 
by all means disagree. In fact, I'm sure you will if you wish to. Um, We've never been known to disagree, ever. Oh, no, never. Uh, <laughs> is that I think what's happened is that the resurrection, the whole question of the resurrection, has been used again and again on the question of historicity of Jesus. And so it should. Uh, it is used that way in the New Testament. But that is only an element of the what the New Testament tells us about the resurrection. Uh, it tells us a great deal more than that. And it's what you've just called the theology of the resurrection is so powerful and so pervasive in the New Testament that that is what we need to explore and think of. We are all in Adam or in Christ. A new humanity has come into being and he is the first fruit of the dead and he now reigns and we are united with him. There's a huge amount of material in the New Testament about the power of the resurrection uh, that we need to ponder and to preach as well. The, the, the Christian gospel is so rich, so rich, and so much pointed out human need. Do you, do you see it that way? How do you see yes, it? Yes, I think there's some other elements of it. I don't agree with those things. I just think there's other elements even bigger. The resurrection is very much caught up with the doctrine of judgment, mm-hmm. the end of the world. Yes, yes. And so, you know, the idea of seeing it as renewal, well, yes, there's a new heavens and a new earth coming, but within that is... Th- the judgment that God has appointed today, in which he'll judge the world by a man, yes. of whom he's given the evidence yes. by the resurrection. Of, the resurrection of the dead, yes. And the, the very concept of Martha saying, I know he will rise, my brother Lazarus mm. will rise on the third day, mm. not realising... On the last day. Yes, yeah, yes. on the last day, in yes. the resurrection. Yes. Because she hasn't understood what Jesus meant when he said... No, I'm the resurrection of the life. Yes. yes. And so... I just feel we, we've underdone resurrection preaching, mm. not wanting to say in contrast to our preaching of the atoning cross, because it's a both that, not an either or. I don't want to put them against each other. No, but, no, of course not. And then, of course, the ascension and what's called the session leads, seated at the right-handedness of Jesus where he now is, awaiting for his return. All these things we need to tie together as part of yes. the resurrection. And I always think of the, uh, the apostolic sermon in Acts 2 where Peter says, and he, namely Jesus, has poured out this, namely the Holy Spirit, on on us. Uh, in other words, it is Christ, it is the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and it is because Christ is now seated in glory that he pours out the Holy Spirit. So it also goes into our pneumatology or our doctrine of the Spirit as well as we think about the resurrection. Yeah. It's big. Well, we'll come back to the doctrine and the Spirit, but just to push further, see, sometimes the secularists understand it better than we do. So they object to B.C. and A.D. Yes. And have changed it to this silly yes, yes. common era and yes. and before common era mm. um, because they understand what A.D. means, mm. which I don't think that the Christian always sees. Mm. And I'm interested, we're in Newtown at the moment, and lots of the buildings around here built in the 19th century give you the date and put A.D. Yes, A.D. There, yes, yes. whereas our buildings today... Well, there's no point putting dates on them because they're going to be pulled down in 30 or 40 years. Mm. But mm. they don't put AD if mm. they did. And in, there are university lecturers who insist that you write BCE and oh, CE. Is that so? Oh, yes. Right, right. You can mark okay. down on AD oh, dear. because they understand it's saying in the year of the Lord. Yes. But yes. there's no after Christ. No. Because Christ is alive and reigns. Yes, yes, yes. And it's the only bit of Latin I think I like. Uh, But it's funny, isn't it, uh, that they do this because still BCE and CE 
uh, revolve around Jesus, yes. whether they like it or not. The common era starts with Jesus. Yes. The only way they can really get around this is, is invent a whole new way of, and I've seen that suggested, but invent a whole new way of uh, numbering the years. And really, surely, that stupidity couldn't. Well, I don't know. We've seen some pretty stupid things. Yeah. Good. <laughs> well, even the firm common era. It's not the Jewish era. It starts from Moses. Yes, It's yes, not yes. the Muslim era. It no, starts no. from... It's, it's, there has never been a common era. No. No, it's not common. No. No, it's a silly thing anyway. But, uh, but they, understand, a... they understand what we possibly just have taken for granted and don't emphasise enough, that we are living in the year of the Lord. Yes. Because of Easter, because of the because resurrection. Easter. Yes, we yes. He is Lord. He, he is, is the man Lord. from heaven. Yeah. Uh, Adam is the man of dust. And he is the man from heaven who's waiting. He, and it is his era. He is in he is the Lord. He is he is the king of God's kingdom. He is the one through whom God's kingdom comes to us and through his word. Is that a happy way of putting it? I'm a happy way of putting it, but I'm gonna take it on to another thing. That is you've talked about the pneumatology. And also we've talked about the holding all these ideas together and you and I have just produced two books. We have. So tell me about your book, The Life of Faith, Yes. An Introduction to Christian Doctrine. What's it about? Why would you write it? Well, are you going to tell us about your book, yes. The Coming of the Holy Spirit? Yes, but I got in first. Because the big thing is that uh, the, this book on uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which is an element of doctrine, is fatter than my book, which purports to give us a survey of the whole of Christian doctrine. Yes, that's because you know so little and I know so much. Oh, is that the reason? I think that's the reason. <laughs> I knew there was a reason. <laughs> well, uh, tell me about your skinny volume first. <laughs> yes, certainly. It wouldn't be because you preach a lot longer sermons than I do, would it? No, no. No, no, no of course not. Uh, maybe uh, that's because i got more to say than you have. It could be. Uh, the introduction to the Christian faith, uh, which we've called the life of faith, is an introduction to what's called Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine means Christian teaching, and especially it's the teaching of the Bible. Not just the teaching of the Bible, but the teaching of the Bible in the light of what people have, how people have read it down through the years, because we're not the first readers of the Bible. Uh, people have been reading the Bible for 2,000 years, and although they're not infallible any more than we are, it's good to listen to what other people are saying too. So it's really... Christian doctrine is really it's an exposition of the Bible in the light of what others have said too. And it tries to take us through the big subjects of the Bible, which is what Christian doctrine is meant to do, the subjects like God, the creation, the end of all things, the meaning of the gospel, Christ, his humanity and his deity, humanity, the Christian life, all those big subjects which you read in the Bible, and it's meant to be a survey of those. It's aimed, I think, well, it was aimed originally at first-year doctrine at Moore College, where I used to teach first-year doctrine. It was aimed at beginners, in other words. It has Genesis there. Yes, that's its Genesis. But I think it's suitable for people, not just people starting out in uh, theological education, but also for general readers who may want to uh, find out what Christian doctrine is saying. And I envisage it being read more widely than just merely theological students. I find that many theological doctrine books tend to be a little... I have to be careful here. I'm insulting many people, I'm sure, but they tend to be a little bit like textbooks. Uh, and they're good, and there are some magnificent ones which I own, but you consult them on different subjects. Whereas I'm hoping with this book to write it almost like a narrative so that you can read it through and get the sense of the whole, and then you can start studying the individual parts. So it's a beginning book. It's intended to give a whole picture it's intended to show how the, play, the, the parts integrate and it's an invitation to go further. 
because of my age and yours, um, I've got many doctors now. Yes. It's a characteristic of getting older. Yes, it is. Yes. And I've got one doctor that I've been speaking to from time to time uh, about Christian things. Mm-hmm. And so I gave him a copy. Oh, of really? Book. Gee, yes. Uh, well, he, he's a highly intelligent, well-educated specialist right. who is really interested in and genuinely, not argumentatively interested, genuinely interested in Christian thinking right. and right. is very interested in me as a minister. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, what do I give him to be reading? And because um, he is a great reader. And so I thought, well, let's try this book. Okay. Well, it could work at this function, couldn't it? With it, it interesting. It, with that sort of person? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it yes. could. He's not ignorant of Christianity. No. But he wants to find out more. Yeah. So although there are um, technical words in there, uh, they don't dominate. Mm. And, and I trust I explain them anyway. And then I give further reading. So I would hope that a person with his background and intelligence and interest could read it profitably. I also think that it's possible that ministers who are in pastoral ministry, maybe been working away for several years, may come back to it as a refresher. And I hope that it might do something for them. Good. These are my hopes. Whether they are true or not, that's up for the readers to decide. Yes, yes. I've started things on occasions. I mean, we started a Wednesday night church once. And the purposes for which we started these things have not come true. But other purposes that we never meant yes. suddenly came true. <laughs> you never through. know. You never know. So, now, what about this book on the Holy Spirit? Well, yours is a book of systematic theology. Yes. But that doesn't mean it's unbiblical. It actually is of the Bible, isn't it, to be yes. good systematic theology? Yes, yes. Whereas, packed full with Bible references. Whereas yes. mine is more a biblical theology. Goodness, what's the difference? doesn't mean it's not systematic. No. It? So what's the difference? How do you see the difference between these phrases, systematic theology or doctrine, and biblical theology? I think the systematic theology, your mind sets out the issues that need to be organised and you, you study the topics, the concepts Yep. that are important, which you've derived from the Bible yep. and for which you find the information within the Bible. Sure. Whereas the biblical theology one is more saying, well, how does the Bible lay out this information? What's its storyline? Um, but to, to give its storyline correctly, you need to actually look at the totality as well and the systems that lie behind mm-hmm. that ongoing. It just is starting at the other end of the, of the elephant that we're eating. In a sense. Yes. They both presuppose two things, I think. First of all, the unity of the Bible. Yes. Yes, they can't work without the unity no, of the Bible. That's no. right. And so many so much scholarship these days doesn't have that belief. They start mm-hmm. they think of the Bible as sixty six books and mm. they'll all go in different directions. But we believe the inspiration of the Bible and the unity of the Bible. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is that the Bible interprets the Bible. <laughs> Yes. That if you want to know the real meaning of the Exodus, the real meaning of the Passover, the real meaning of creation, that in the end you will find the New Testament telling you these things, that new and old belong together. In fact, you can't really understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Both things are needed. And uh, I think biblical theology is one of the most wonderful subjects of all. And it's, it does that for you. It tells you, it enables you to interpret the Bible by the Bible. Yes. In a narrative way. Yes. And so I start off with Jesus. It's not the beginning of the story no. in one sense, but that is the end point that the whole of the Bible theology is going to be heading yes. towards. Yes. And so in the light of that, you then look backwards to see what yes. is. And, and there's been many controversies about the Holy Spirit. Indeed. Um, ancient ones, the division between the, the Eastern Orthodox and the mm. Western and modern ones in Pentecostalism. With the controversy, it seems to me important to be looking at the Bible texts from within the Bible's narrative rather than looking at the Bible's texts from our 
ideas which are inevitably controlled by the controversies. Mm. And so I look into the Bible to confirm my already held theological view. I get my proof texts from the Bible when I approach it with that kind of framework. Whereas if I say, well, look, how did the subject of the Holy Spirit come up in the Bible? Where did it come up? Who taught it? For what purpose? And of course, it's Jesus in John 14, 15, 16, where he's speaking to the disciples in the night he was betrayed, where the greatest, clearest teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit is yes, laid indeed. out for us. Yep. Yep. So that's the starting point mm. from which we can then start to understand well, what happened in the book of Acts and with the preaching of the gospel and what do the Christian letters tell us about the fulfilment of Jesus' plans for the coming of the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's aimed to kind of, in a sense, address the issues of today because Christians are very confused about the work of the Holy Spirit in the non-controversial way yes. of looking at the Bible itself. Yes, yes. But you've read the appendices. And looking very carefully at the Bible. Well, uh, Philip, I was about to mention your method, which is uh, the book, in a sense, falls into two halves. And the second half is a series of short essays, which you've called appendices, and that's okay. But there are a series of short essays on different topics to do with the Holy Spirit. And it just struck me as extraordinarily valuable. And, of course, when I picked up the book, what did I do? I went immediately to the essays. And I read all 43 of them. What's he say about this subject? What's he say about that subject? Uh, it's a... F it's a sort of funny way to write a book, but I think it works. Yeah, well, as I was writing through what the book is, you keep on coming up to a topic that is going to occur several times. And so you don't have to explain what something is several times, nor do you want to lose the thread of the argument by hiving off to, into a, a three or four page essay on things like, say, well, what is speaking in tongues, right? I mean... Do I put that into the day of Pentecost or do I put that into 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, 14 or do I put it in twice and is it the same thing? It's better to deal with that as a separate topic. But as I went on, the number of separate topics got bigger and bigger and yes, bigger. Yes, it did. Yes, yes, <laughs> so yes. So we just have a set of appendices. Now, I see by looking at the table of contents that I have uh, I have made a big mistake. I said there were 43 appendices and yes, there's only 34. yes. I, I twisted the numbers around. Dyslexia runs. Dyslexia, exactly. obviously. But the, uh, but the subjects that you deal with in the first part of the book are that Jesus promises the Spirit. As you say, you begin with Jesus. And I, I am very sympathetic to that because those chapters in 14 to 17, 14 to 16 particularly, of John, basic to what we understand about the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Then the Spirit arrives. It looks largely from the Acts of the Apostles. Yes. The baptism of the Spirit, power and witnessing, etc., etc., then the Holy Spirit's world mission, the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, for example, and then the Holy Spirit and the Christian life. That You're walking sort of lockstep with my book, I think, in some ways there, because I too start with Jesus and the gospel, end up talking about the Holy Spirit and the Christian life. So I trust that all we're saying is the same thing, I hope, more or less. Well, we, yes. A different, a different method. We can mm. sell more books if we ask people to compare and contrast. <laughs> <laughs> Very funny. Okay. Um, but you, some of, just to, in case there, there are people listening who have not yet heard, some of Philip's appendices, for example, include arguing from anecdotes, walking by faith, not by sight, prosperity, spiritual warfare, sealed by the Spirit, being slain in the Spirit, signs and wonders, speaking in tongues. They're the sort of subjects... How did you describe them again? These are controversial... Well, they tend to be where the controversies are, but as I worked through writing what the Bible was saying, I just came to these topics that came up three or four times. Mm -hmm. You're sealed with the Spirit in about yeah. five different places. Yes, yes. I either have to explain it five times or put it in an appendix, explain it once. Mm -hmm. And to explain it each time, I think, distracts from the main theme of 
what the spirit comes to do. Okay, okay. Well, I found it valuable. I found it uh, because one of the things I've often noticed is one of the problems of expository preaching. I believe in expository preaching. I think our preaching normally ought to be an exposition of the Bible. Uh, because exactly what we want people to be doing at home during the week, namely reading their Bible, ought to be what they can see on Sundays. But as well as that, I would think that we need 20% of the time to be talking doctrine or the teaching of the Bible. And one of the difficulties with expository preaching is that apart from John 14 to 17, and even there, the Holy Spirit is not the main theme of any particular passage. And you can do an expository, you can preach for three years and go right through the Bible, but never really talk much about the Holy Spirit, or so it seems to me. And hence the need for doctrine and the need for this book, the bringing together of what is said about the Holy Spirit, which is quite ex- extensive, of course. Yes. Uh, no, no, you, 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 you've done more expository preaching than me in the nature of our different ministries. But is that a, how, how would you respond to that suggestion? Expository preaching without systematic theology is, is in the end, a disaster. Yes. Because you're not really expounding the Scriptures. Because no. the scriptures are part, any, any passage is part of the whole. Mm-hmm. And without reference to the whole, you're not going to say what the passage is accurate. But what about, you know, this idea that one big idea, well, if you do that consistently, uh, preaching the main idea of the passage, if you do that consistently, you're going to miss out on things that aren't, aren't the big idea in that passage, which, which are big ideas. Yes. Is that fair? Right. I mean, I mean right. you're the expert on this. Well, you tell me. <laughs> that, that is, and he's dead, so we can speak freely. That is John Chapman. Oh, is and that where it came from? That's right, yeah. And oh, Chapo, right. okay. Chapo, of course, as you and I both know, was a great preacher. He was he, indeed. One of the yes. greatest that we ever had the privilege of hearing. But Chapo was an itinerant. Mm. Mm. And so when he was going to preach somewhere, he had he had to get across one idea. Yeah, yeah. And so that was his model of, of thinking. Now, in talking to students and teaching students in preaching, he was right in one sense in that people need to have a clear thought of what their aim of their sermon is going to be. Yes. But, you know, he's wrong in that. Um, week by week preaching, one big idea is not really going to be educating the congregation in all the things that the scriptures are saying. Mm. And getting people to think more widely on a variety of ideas is important. Mm. Mm. It was like that with Chapo and illustrations. He was very cranky with me because I wasted too many illustrations. He once counted, he said, you had 40 illustrations in a 45-minute talk. Prodigal, he said, prodigal. But of course, he was an itinerant, so he could work on one illustration and hone it and hone it and develop it. But if you're the local pastor, they've heard that one last week, Mm. you can't use it again Mm. and again and again. Mm. You have to see the illustrations in lots of things in life. It's just, you know... It's it's a discussion we had when he was alive, he and I. Yes, you're not talking behind his back or anything no, like this. No, no just no, over no. his grave. Through <laughs> <laughs> your graves and the like, the Queen has died, and we have now got a king. We do you do. remember the Queen's coronation? Yes, I remember the announcement of the King George VI's death. I was sitting in a classroom uh, in primary school, and the headmaster came in with great gravity and, and told us about the king's death. It was so important because the king... Much more than these days. So the king was our king. Our uh, our parents and their grandparents had fought for king and country, and they meant it, and for empire. So it was really significant. The coronation of Elizabeth II, I remember less, though I do have some memories of it, but it was before television, and so the impact of it was far, far less than what we've seen with the uh, with her. Yes, you had to go to the picture show to see it in the... Indeed, in, yes, yes, yes. In the newsreels, that's why they called them, didn't they? In the newsreels. But you couldn't um, couldn't avoid it, and it was indeed an absolutely remarkable occasion and very Christian. 
Do you think the next one is going to be as Christian? It's, it's oh, in May this year. What a world has changed since then. Well, what are the Christian elements of it, for example? Well, the ones that I think of in particular are many. I mean, the whole thing is a Christian service. The Archbishop of Canterbury plays an absolutely central role in crowning the new queen. That's a tradition that goes back. The two things that I particularly think of are the promise to maintain the Protestant and Reformed religion. Now, it sounds very old-fashioned these days, but the Queen promised this, and it has a history, of course. And the second is the, um, the words of the Archbishop, if I remember correctly, in talking about the Bible and really referring to it as the, most imp- the greatest treasure that this world has is the Bible, the Word of God. And he places the Bible in her hands. Indeed. And there you've got the, all the, the royal jewels. Yes. They're all there. The treasures are out <laughs> yes. in the public. Yes. But the greatest one is the Bible. Is the Bible. Well, yeah. important to see that. Now, you and I are going to talk about uh, the king. Yes. On the king's birthday. It's a long time since we've had a king's birthday holiday, okay. but the Very king's good. birthday holiday, where we'll be talking about long live the king. Yes. Which After is a funny that, phrase, isn't it? Is, long live the king. Well, <laughs> well I'm sure, sure the king is hoping that this uh, phrase comes true. Uh, His parents lived long. And he has lived long. But uh, his hope is that he lives longer. Uh, And we'll talk about it after the coronation. Yes. Do you think there's going to be much change in the coronation? I hope not. I think he is a conservative in Mm. these kinds of traditions. Mm -hmm. But he has made it clear on other occasions that he wanted to be a defender of faith rather than a defender of the faith. Mm. But whether he expresses that in the in the coronation, or whether he he is free to express it in the coronation is another question, isn't it? And he did say it a long time ago. You you hope that he may have thought again about it, actually. Uh, We'll see. But but it will be interesting to see. Did you... You and I spoke, as if I remember correctly, about the the funeral service before it happened, and we had a bit of an opinion about what might happen in it, but it was better than that, wasn't it? Yes, there were lots of really good things in it, yes. But the Queen was one who was very clear in her marked profession of being Christian. She was. And I gather it fulfilled her wishes to be a yeah. Christian. Yes. But ceremonies do matter. Napoleon, he took the crown and put it on his own head mm-hmm. because there was no one greater than he who could mm-hmm. crown him. Mm-hmm. And while we may glamorise Napoleon today, he was the Hitler of his day, wasn't he? Well... He really was. He wasn't a pleasant person, I don't think. No. Yes. So... Well, we'll see. But it'll be interesting. King's birthday here at Moore College for the conference Mm. and it'll be live-streamed elsewhere around Australia and I hope people will tune in as you and I talk through bigger issues, really, isn't it? It just gives us an opportunity. It's a a moment to think on government and Christianity and a relationship. And the more we think about it, the bigger it grows. So, um, (laughs) yes, at least let's make a start. And the more pressing in the the circumstances of our country and other countries today. Yeah, yes, it's true. It's funny, the uh, fundamental rules of a country can only exist and work if they're based on the presupposition that human beings are sinful. But they'll also only be able to work if it's true that most people are good enough to keep them without having to be bullied into keeping them. So it's an interesting paradox how people can be good enough to run their own country because they keep the rules and yet sinful and allowance has to be made for that. Well, what a subject. How about you talk about the goodness and I'll talk about the sin because <laughs> then we'll be playing to our strengths. Very funny, Philip. <laughs> okay. How about I close in prayer now? Please do. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have of chatting together and thank you for the opportunity of thinking of these great things, of your work in the Word, especially in the coming of the Holy Spirit. We do pray, Father, that through the preaching of the gospel over Easter in 2023, that the Lord Jesus 
has been glorified and will be glorified and that people will come to faith in him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.